talking and it don't make sense Tell me what it's all about The truth is stranger the closer you get To the who, what, where, when, how Absurd is the word, guess what I heard Absurd is the word, guess what I heard Guess what I heard Guess what I heard Hi, this is Know What I Heard. I'm Jamie, and on this episode, I get to share a really incredible story with you guys. I'm joined by Natalia Ajano. Um, she's actually from the UK and shares her really amazing life story. Just kind of to give a quick summary, when Natalia was 19 years old, her father actually murdered her mother. Um, he was later diagnosed with schizophrenia, and Natalia ended up forgiving her father for the murder um, and received a lot of criticism for that. She ended up writing a book about that experience and discovered that her mother was not able to donate her organs because she was killed. Um, her mother was a big advocate for organ donation and instilled that importance in Natalia whenever she was a young girl. So Natalia ended up donating one of her kidneys to a complete stranger in her mother's honor. She saved his life. Because of that, she was nominated and won a Pride of Britain Award, which is basically like the Oscars for good people and good deeds. Um, so it was a huge deal. Her story is is just filled with, with so many different aspects. It starts out with heartbreaking loss and ends in forgiveness and selflessness and unconditional love. And it's just an amazing story. So here's Natalia. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate There's it. There's no problem. Your story was just absolutely fascinating when I heard it and wanted to share it. So I guess just if you want to introduce yourself, you know, just maybe start at the beginning. Okay, so my name is Natalie Reggiano. I'm now 42 years old and I live in England, UK. Um, so growing up was, I was actually born in Italy um, and then I came to England when I was three. So my mother is English, my father is Italian, and my father was an Italian immigrant that came over to the UK for work, and that's where he met my mum. So my mum and dad then got together and went, uh, decided to get go back to Italy and get married, and that's where they brought up the uh, children. So there's me, I have uh, a sister that's 10 years older than me, a brother that's nine years older than me, and then another brother that's 10 years younger than me. So um, in Italy, when my brother, elder brother, um, was about 13 he got really bad epilepsy and the doctors in Italy told him it was the heat that was causing it so that's when we decided to come back to the UK for the climates so growing up my dad was very um, religious he was very a man goes out to work a woman stays at home uh, women are born to just raise children and be mothers um, and you should obey your parents and so I was very um, quite a defiant child so if my dad would say like I was expect me and my sister was expected to cook and clean with my mum and my dad would ask me to make him a coffee and I would say, no, you've got legs, do it yourself. And in return, <laughs> I would get a good spanking or a beating. But to me, I'd won because I didn't have to make the cup of tea or a cup of coffee or whatever he wanted me to do. <laughs> right. Um. Yeah. Um. 
But what I didn't realise was um, at the time that he would take that out on my mother, he would blame her that I was a defiant child, mm. that it was her fault, that I didn't behave. Um, so he was very religious, but he was he was his own religious. He would take bits from each religion and then put it into his own. He was a very intelligent guy, like he could read a book or a Bible and re- remember what was on page five and line three. He had oh, like wow. a very photogenic and um memory but he believed everything that he believed was correct and everybody else would be wrong um my mom and dad's marriage wasn't he never touched her physically um not even mentally as in like he would tell her she was beautiful my mom was quite a big lady so he would tell her she was beautiful uh he loved her and stuff but he was very controlling in the fact that she wasn't allowed friends she wasn't allowed people he would call worldly good so people that were um not religious or people that he thought were together wrongly um like they weren't married and they were living together gotcha. so i don't know at what point but my parents became jehovah's witness my dad got kicked out of the religion because he didn't agree with some of it but my mum stayed but i think my mum stayed in it because it meant she got away with from my father for a while because he wasn't in the church but he was happy that she was going because it was church and it was a good place to go um so on a like on a sunday would be our church day and she would get up at six in the morning, get the food ready, because in England we have like a Sunday dinner, which is like your um, Thanksgiving. We have it every Sunday. Oh, wow. Um, so she would have all the vegetables and all the food ready for when she went came back from church. She could just switch it on and be ready for us to make our, uh, my dad's dinner for us all. Um, but I think for church was her, for her to get out and for her to have friends. Um, so I, when I was, what, I think when I turned 17, I was ready to leave home. I left home at 17 and did not want to live in a house that was so controlled. Like, my dad would say things like, um, you, I shouldn't be showing my sleeves because I'm asking for trouble. If I asked to stay at my friend's house, he would say, no, because their dad in the middle of the night might rape me. He oh, had this wow. warped sense of humor of, or, of what bad could always happen. Um, huh. So like, even when I was like 18, he still wanted me to go to bed at nine o'clock at night. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> and so it was like, I was like always going to be a child. So at 17, as soon as the first boy came along, I was I was gone out the town, ran away. It was like, gone, I'm leaving. I told them I was leaving, but I'd gone to the police station first to check with the police that legally I could leave and my dad couldn't do anything. And then told my dad I'd been to the police that he couldn't actually do anything um, huh. with me leaving. And then I ended up on the streets because I didn't want to come home. So that relationship ended mm-hmm. and I ended up on the streets and I didn't want to come home. Um, the only reason I came home was... I was actually raped when I was on the streets um, and my mum and dad begged me to come home. But I kept thinking, my dad, if I come home, I'm, I'm going to get into a fight. My dad is going to end up hitting me. So I made my dad promise to me that if he ever touched me, he would never see me again. And my dad is somebody that if he says no, it means no. If my mum says no, it could mean yes. <laughs> like my dad is very what if he makes a promise, he keeps it. Right. So if he says he's going to do something, he's going, he's going to do it. Hmm. Um, so then I eventually did go home. Um, and then when I was uh, 19, my mum called me one day. I'd, I'd left home, but not in a bad way. I just moved out. Um, and my mum called me to say that she wanted to leave my dad. And um, all through my teenage, all through my teenage years, I used to be quite mean to my mum. I used to blame her for that life was bad because she stayed at home with my dad and she never left him. And her words were always, "When you're 18, I'll leave him." And then obviously, when I was 10 years old, my little brother was born. So when he's 18, then we'll leave home. Mm. Um, so. She she hadn't got any reason to leave and she just had enough. She just wanted a peaceful life where she could be her. So we'd arranged for her to leave my dad um, and he was going to no, have no, he had no idea. So he worked two in the afternoon till 10 at night, came home from work at 10 at night and my mum was gone with a note saying we've left you. Wow. Um, all she had, 
So all she had is uh, she had my elder sister's uh, cell phone, as the Americans call it, and uh, we call it a mobile. Had his cell phone so that she, he could still contact her son, his son, because my mum didn't want him not to have contact with his son. So she left on the 26th of uh, April 2000, uh, 1997. Sorry, 2000, 1997. Um, and she managed to stay away from him for a whole year, a whole month. So for that month, I learned to have a whole new relationship with my mum. Just little things like she would walk down the street and say for what he does for me in a pair of tight jeans and I'd be like what my mum's never been like that very <laughs> quiet very shy doesn't look people in the eye and just little things like I used to smoke and I remember one day she said to me do you have a cigarette and I said yeah she said take one out can you light it for me wow. and I was like but mummy don't smoke and she said no you smoke so you light it and you smoke it if you want to smoke it's okay just don't do it in my house and I was <laughs> like that's not not a problem so I lived with her two floors below her in these luxury apartments so I never used to lock my door because it was a safe building you couldn't get in and if you didn't live there um, so she used to knock once and just come in and if I was having a bath she would sit on the toilet seat um, while I was having a bath and we'd have like a mother-daughter chat all the mm-hmm. time um, and this one time she came to see me and she said to me that she want, she was going to see my dad the next day and I said why are you going to see my dad and she said well I've got he's got some posts that I have to collect and also uh, your brother wants to see his friends that live there so we're going to go see your dad and I looked at her and she just had this look on her and I remember just going cold in this warm bath and saying to her what's wrong and she said I'm scared he's gonna kill me and I said why mum why do you not hate him I said I hate him with a passion I wish he was dead like he's just not a nice person and she turned around to me and said I love him for who he is not for what he does just like you're my daughter it doesn't matter what you do in this world I'll always love you I might not love what you've done or the acts that you've done but I'm your mother and I'll always love you and be there and so I said to her, well, I'm going out nightclubbing tonight, but in the morning, just come and wake me up and I'll go with you. He can't hurt you if I'm with you. He's, there's no way I'm going to leave you with him for five seconds. So he's, he can't harm you. And she promised me that's what she would do. Um, and it's funny because that night when I said bye to her, she had some friends around and I was teasing her saying, love you, mum, love you, mum. And she's going, bye. And I'm go- going back in, love you, mum, love you, mum. <laughs> and I was like teasing her. So... um which is the most amazing thing that I got to say. The last words I ever got to say to her was, I love you. While my, right. some, my other family members don't have that, even though it was in a teasing way, she still understood. Right. And then I I didn't know till uh, years later that actually my mum sent my brother down to get me in the morning and he found me asleep on the sofa um, went back upstairs to my mum and said she's sleeping. My mum said, I'll just leave her to sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be fine. And away she went to, to go visit my dad. At the time, my older brother lived with my dad, but my older brother had um, really bad epilepsy still, and he had quite um, a child's mentality. So if he told him to do, if his mum and dad told him to do something, he would do it. So my younger brother went out to see all his friends, and my my father sent my elder brother to the shop to go get fish and chips for everyone. Which, if I was there, I would have seen what that he was wanting to be alone with her, and I wouldn't have left. But obviously, he didn't have that capacity to understand that. Right. So. My brother goes to get fish and chips. My dad locks the back door and sits with my mum and tells him that he, he's, he, he tells her that God's going to punish her for um, leaving him. Because in my dad's eyes, when you make a marriage vow to God, unless your husband beats you, rapes you or does something really bad, if you leave your husband, you broke a vow to God and in the afterlife, God will punish you. Wow. So when he said to my mum, God's going to punish you, my mum was like, I'm OK, I'm, I'm ready to take that punishment. But what he actually meant was he had a vision from God and God said to him, if she doesn't come back to you, 
um, if you have to kill a body to save a soul, otherwise she won't make it to the afterlife. So when my mum said to him, I'm ready to take my punishment, she didn't realise what she was actually saying to my dad was, is the punishment you're going to get is to kill me. Um, uh, So, yeah. So then at that point, he then um, went into the kitchen. He we had a little axe in the kitchen, which was what I used to play with as a kid to to, um, take trees down. Um, He tried he came back in with the axe, tried to hit her in the back with the axe, but he didn't do anything. So he ran back into the kitchen. At that point, she's trying to get up off the sofa. He gets a big knife out the block of knives, goes into her back to stab her again, but it's it's too flimsy because it's so big, it's, it's going to snap. So that's not done anything. So again, he's running back into the kitchen, and then he takes a smaller knife out. And then he said to me that once he started stabbing my mum, I think he stabbed her, it was something like 50, 14 or 15 times. Once he started, he couldn't stop. And then he did what we call caressing, where he laid her in his arms and he's caressing her cheeks with his hands. Um, and later on, I did ask him what her final words were. And he said her final words was, everyone will know you're a murderer now. Um, and then he called the police and said, um, I've killed my wife. I need you to come back. I need you to come here and get it so that my, my children don't see this. He then calls my elder sister at work and says, I've killed your mum. You need to come here because your younger brother's outside playing with his friends. I don't want him coming and finding your mum. Um, and then he calls work and tells them that he's, he can't come in on Monday because he's killed his wife. I don't know why he decided to call work. And so at this point, I get woken up with the police at my house. So at, at 19 years old, me and my friends used to smoke weed. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, they've come to arrest me for weed. So I'm collecting weeds up and I'm holding it in my hand. <laughs> and I'm running up to my mum's flat, two floors, sitting outside the door going, oh, my God, the police are coming to get me. And I look through the litter box and I realise my mum's not there. And I'm thinking she was supposed to wake me up. She didn't come. She must have gone without me. So then I wait about 15, 20 minutes. I go back down and my roommate says, because um, at the intercom, it's, to get into our apartment, you have to intercom us. That's how we knew the police were at the, at the door downstairs. So she, he said, it's the police. And I said, oh, no, is, are they looking for the drugs? He said, no, it's something to do with your mum. They've asked you to phone her. And I said, my mum. So I go to the, fo- I go, uh, to the phone and I call uh, my mum and dad's house. Nobody answers. I call my mum's mum. Nobody answers. I call my sister's work and they said, oh, she's had to leave early and won't tell me why. And then I just turned to my flatmate and said, my dad's killed her. He must have stabbed her to death because we don't have guns in England. Like, he must have killed her. There's no way that nobody's answering any phones. If there'd been an accident, somebody would have let me know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I called the police back and then they come to the house um, and tell and ask me, who are my parents? Um, can I confirm that they're my parents? And then I just turned to him and said, it's my dad, hasn't it? He's killed my mom. And they were like, yeah, unfortunately, your mom's been killed by your father. So then... They take me to where my family are at the police station. Now, at 19 years old, if you tell me I can't do something, I'm going to tell you, you watch me, I can do it. I was very, I was very like hard done by, the world owes me a favour. I wasn't a nice person. And I remember walking into the police station, and it's something that I, I swear changed my life forever, because this policeman, I said, where's my dad? I need to speak to my dad. I needed to know, had he really done this? How had he done it? Are the police lying? Are they telling the truth? I need to speak to my dad. And this policeman was adamant. Well, he was a sergeant in England. Adamant. I was not going to be, I was not allowed to speak to my dad. That The press was outside. I wasn't to speak to them. And the more I kept saying, you're not speaking to your father, I was like, I demand to speak to my father. Who dare you tell me I can't speak to him? <laughs> and then this other policeman took me to this side and explained to me why I couldn't speak to him, how they had to be invest. He had to be interviewed. They had to do forensic. But he said, if you write on a piece of paper, I'll pass it over to your dad and I'll come and collect you tomorrow so you can come and see your dad. But today it's definitely impossible for you to see him. So 
So me and my dad never had a close relationship. My sister was more the daddy's girl and I was more mummy's girl. Um, So I wrote this note saying, to dad, I'm trying to see you. They won't let me see you, but they're allowing me to come and see you tomorrow. Love your daughter. Because I thought if I put my name, he's going to demand that. He'll never let me see him because he'll know that I'll go crazy at him. Um, So the policeman kept his word. He came and picked me up the next day. And um, and my dad was behind um, a Perspex screen in like um, plastic material because obviously they're taking his clothes off him. Now, my dad's a very stern man, like men don't cry in front of people. You should like just man up. And my dad walked in and he was crying. And I've never seen my dad cry like I'd seen him that crying. And I just sat there and I said to him, I need you to tell me the truth of what happened. If I ever hear in court or from the police or from evidence that you've lied to me, You'll never see me again. And right now, there's nobody here but me. Nobody else wants to see you. It's only me that wants to see you, but you need to tell me what happened. Um, so he told me the story of um, what happened, which is what I've told you. And it was the beginning of a relationship with my dad. I can't say I forgave him there and then I didn't. It took a long time. But then I started realizing he was ill. So I was saying to him, you can't keep going on about God because they're going to put you into a mental hospital. Um, you don't want that. Um, so he, in England, you go on remand in prison for a year till they till you get sentenced. Um, so every time at court, everything that came out of court was exactly what he told me. Um, so the more he, he was telling me the truth, the more I was going back. And then he got diagnosed with schizophrenia. So he didn't get done for murder in England. It's called dis- diminished responsibility. It basically means that the reason he did the crime was because he was mentally not uh, not um, capable of making the, the right decision. Huh. And so he got sent to a mental hospital here. And I remember when he went to the mental hospital and how he begged to get out and go back to prison because they were giving him drugs that was making his brain um, slow down. He couldn't remember things. He just didn't he didn't he didn't like it. He wanted to be in prison where at least he still had his main uh, capacity of his brain. But the more he was taking the drugs, the more he then realized that actually I was ill um, and he would apologize every day. Now I know I'm ill. If I'd known I was ill, I would have got help. And I remember my mum did actually go to the doctor and said, I think my husband's got mental problems. And the doctor told him that my dad would have to come in to see the doctor himself. My mum was, was saying, well, he'll never admit that he's got a problem because he doesn't think he, he has a problem. Hmm. Um, so this, so that one of, and then one of the reasons I stayed visiting him was my sister at that time, if he said to her, where's your parents? She would say, both my parents are deceased. And she would end it like that. My younger brother was only nine at the time. No, I had nobody to really talk to about my mum. So he would tell me stories about my mum every day. So he would keep her alive. Um, where I was living in the town, I was getting spat at in the street because I was visiting my dad. People were telling stories that I would paint red paint on the wall and charge people £10 to come look at the blood. Like, it was ridiculous. In the end, I ended up having to leave because it just wasn't nice. But I remembered people telling me as well, my mum would turn in a grave if she could see me. But... My mum's last words was to me is, I love people for who they are, not for what they do. Right. And I couldn't, I've never been able to get that out of my head um, ever. Yeah. Um, so it started a whole uh, new relationship with my dad. He couldn't control me anymore. He couldn't say any, any, tell me what to do. He could just give me his advice as a father. And it was up to me when to take it. But then at the same time at 19, how do you deal with your mum being murdered? What, how are you supposed to, what am I supposed to do? Like, there's no rule books. At that time, the internet had only just come out. I didn't know anybody that it happened to. Uh, there was no no rule book. I didn't know. I was wanting questions all the time. What do I do? How do I deal with this? Yeah. And I had nobody to do with that. My sister didn't have anything to do with my dad. So me and her wasn't close. My younger brother was nine. And 
I ended up getting into drugs because I was just trying to find answers to things. I just didn't know how to deal with it. And I managed to eventually uh, sort my life out and I didn't. And then in 2006, my dad uh, died of cancer while he was inside. And I remember when he told me he had cancer, he said, um, don't mourn for me. This is my punishment. This You have to let me go. This is my punishment for what I've done. And what's really strange is he died nine years exactly on the day that my mum left my dad, which was really strange. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. After that, I got... Um, I ended up writing an autobiography about what had happened to me. But I was always wary that whenever you Googled my name, it came up, or my mum's name, it came up about murder and death. And that it looked like I was always on my dad's side and that my mum was forgotten about, which was never the case. So I wanted to do something in memory of my mum. So I remember watching this film called Pay It Forward, mm-hmm. where the story is about a boy who gets given... An, a task at school to change the world and he invents this pay it forward where you do three kind things to three kind people and then they pass it on um so i wanted to do a, a, some pay it forwards and i wanted my first one to be something big and that was it that was all i wanted to do and then i remembered that when i was doing my book we my mum when i was a kid at 14 we she used to watch programs where you could see live surgeries um, and she used to love it and this one time they were talking about oh organ donation and she gave me my first donor card when I was like 14 and explained to me that when you die, you have to give your organs. Um, and I and I remember seeing the card saying, what, I have to give my eyes? There's going to be somebody walking around with my eyes? That's going to be really strange. And she was like, no, you have to help other people that are dying so they can survive. So I remembered that. And then I was at work one day and there was a guy at work that has kidney problems. And he came back from an appointment saying that he'd met somebody who donated a kidney to somebody that was alive while they were alive. And I was like, you can give organs while you're alive? what's this about Mm -hmm. and then I put all three of them together and was like I want to do something in memory of my mum and I found out when I wrote my book that because of that she was technically dead when the police arrived she couldn't donate all any of her organs and I knew how mortified she would have been Mm -hmm. at that so I remember because at the time that I was there wasn't many people that had done it in England I remember googling it and I just came across a kidney hospital and I just rang up and said this is gonna be strange but I hear you can give kidneys while you're alive how do I go about this? And she said, oh, we send you a pack out um, and then we'll book you an appointment. You can come in. And they told me that at any point I could say I could say no and, and withdraw to the point they put you to sleep at surgery. So when I got there, I never told them why. But I said, can you tell me genetically, am I more my mom or my dad? Because I'm Italian, but I look like my mom. I don't look Italian at all. Well, my brother and sister look Italian. They've got the dark eyes, the dark hair. I'm blonde, blue eyes. I don't, don't look Italian at all. Um, and they said, yeah, of course. They didn't even question why. And it came back that I was genetically more English than I was Italian. So I was like, okay, so my kidney now is my mum. This is her. This is not right. me. This is my mum's my mom's kidney. So then I went and proceeded to do um, to donate a kidney in memory of my mum because I wanted to change her legacy. I wanted you to Google her name and it comes up that she saved her life, not about murder and death which is not what she's about so they did a match to find the um the perfect person that was on top of the donor list waiting to die and and they found one that we were such a match that we could have been related um so i knew yeah i knew all along i didn't want to know i knew wanted to know like the basic information so i knew he was 10 years older than me i knew he'd got an acute illness that made him ill and i knew that the kidney would go two hours away left right northeast southwest that's all i wanted to know and then the only other thing i wanted to know is whether that kidney attached to him and it was okay that's all i wanted to know i did not want to know any more information i just wanted to know that my mum was out in the world right so um so in 2012 i donated my kidney um to the, to a stranger 
And then what happened was his, him and his mum wrote me a letter. So you can write because you, you can't meet each other in England for two years because what was happening in America, it was done. There've been more, there's been more people that donated. I was the 52nd person in England to do it. In America, oh, wow. it's a lot bigger. Um, so what was happening in America was people that had donated to other families was then going and saying, I need a car. I have no money. I've just saved your life. I demand this. I demand that. Yeah. So in England, they decided that for two years, you're not allowed to meet, but you can write to each other as long as there's not any information in there that gives away who you are. So I had this letter from his mum, which I never thought from a mum's perspective, saying how it, they'd arranged his funeral. He'd only had a week to live. She prayed to God for an angel. And then I, I miraculously appeared. Mm. Um, how how she couldn't understand how a stranger would give their a body part to another stranger that they don't know. And then she'd like wrote what hospital he'd been in and they cut it out. So in my piece of paper, there's a hole where she tried to tell me what hospital there was at. And I thought, oh, my gosh, like. And she was like, I hope you're well. Please let us know that, that nothing bad's happened to you since you've had this surgery. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, I never thought of it from a mother's perspective. So I thought, OK, I'm going to write back and I'm going to explain how I don't want to have any more communication. I'm not looking to have communication with them, but give them the reason why I did it. So I explained to them about my pay it forward, how it was in memory of my mom. And I want to believe that my mom's gone out into the world. And I explained to her that I never picked her son it was the universe that picked that it wasn't me that I never picked him directly um, and I explained to her that you've said thank you now that's enough I never want to hear thank you again I never did this for anything this is I actually they say you're an altruistic donor that you're selfless but actually I was doing it selfishly because it was something I was doing for me not for the other person in a tiny way I wasn't thinking about I know I was saving another life but for me it was I wanted my mum to live on right. so this let this so I sent this letter and I never heard back one day on the way to work in our news in the news in England came up this article about a charity that Jimmy started called Give a Kidney to promote people to donate kidneys while you're alive. So on their website was these stories: one that I'd received, one that was waiting, and one that I'd, some, one that somebody had given a kidney. Now the one that received it, everything that was in there was in my letter from his mom, except at the end they said we never heard back from her. We think she died. And I was like, oh, my gosh, his mom thinks I'm dead. Aww. I was like, I don't I really don't want it to think I'm dead. I'm alive. I didn't. But everything in it was in my letter. So I searched his name and he's an accountant. And he said on his website that it was his website was under construction. But here's my email address. So I emailed him and said, just said, are you the Chris that's in the newspaper today? And he replied back, yes, can I ask why? And I said, um, I think you may have my kidney. I just need you. We need to work out if you have. If you have, I need you to tell your mom I'm not dead. I'm alive. <laughs> um, and then he and then he begged me, saying, my mom would really, really love to meet you. Can you please meet meet my mom? And I just felt really bad that she thought I was dead. That I, I, I said, OK, I, I agree. I'll come and see you. But he didn't tell his mom. So he turned up at the door and, his mo and he said to his mom, do you know who this is? And his mom's like, no, do you have a new girlfriend? Who's this lady? <laughs> and he was like, this is the girl that uh, has my kid that gave me the, her kidney. And his mom was literally in tears. Mm. Um, and I actually have now a really good bond relationship with his mom. But at the same time, you have to keep him at arm length because if something goes wrong, they want to help you. So right. I remember one time my car broke and she's like, do you need help with the car? I'm like, no. Nope. Or if I go see her, she wants to pay for the meal. And I'm like, you can't do this. Like, this, I can't receive something because we actually did get in trouble that we actually found each other. Oh, um, really? But they put him in, they put them in the press and it was it was so easy. I wasn't I didn't need to uh, be a, an investigator to figure it out. <laughs> it was everything that was in my letter. So he's doing fine, and what he does is when he goes on holiday, he sends me a message, me and your mum are doing this. He got mm -hmm. married, and he put me and your mum are getting married. So for me, my mum gets to live on, and I changed her legacy. Now, yeah. the person that was 
the journalist that wrote that in England we have this thing called the Pride of Britain Award, which is um, bigger than the Oscars in England for England, and it's basically an award ceremony that celebrities give award to everyday people for charity work or for doing anything uh, above and beyond the norm. Um, so that journalist not put my name forward for the Pride of Britain Award, and what he does is it goes around the country on a, on a bus and gets nominated. So what she did is she asked if she could do a story that me and Chris had met each other. So Chris asked me, would you be willing to do a story? And I said, no problem. She then That story then got put into the nominations where people voted. So 12,000 people were voting for something I didn't even know I was in, oh, <laughs> a competition. Wow. Um, so then I got a phone call saying, you've won this Pride of Britain Award. And I thought it was a joke. And I hung up the phone to the woman. And the journalist had to ring me back and said, it's not a joke. You're back. I was like, but I didn't I didn't put myself in any competition. She was like, no, I put you forward. And then people voted for you. I was like, OK. Um, and I actually nearly turned it down because I just felt, why would you give it to me when in my charity, there's lots of people that have done it. I'm, the fi- I'm not the only person that's done it. I don't feel like I should be the one that wins this award. And I never did it to win an award. It feels wrong. But the charity asked me, to do it for them so that it got recognition for them. Um, and then it, the year after, they were so undated that they couldn't keep up with people that had said, I've seen this woman on the Pride of Britain, how do I donate a kidney? Um, so it did do really well. So I um, so I got my award by John Bon Jovi, oh, wow. <laughs> which, was, um, which was crazy. Yeah. Um, and it was for, it's called, um, I got it for um, turning a tragedy into a positive and by donating a kidney. Um, yeah, I managed to change my mum's legacy and help now. I've also other people have donated kidneys, so that's I've obviously in one way saved other people's lives too. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, but um, yeah, I never did it for recognition. And then at that award, one of the celebrities knew my publisher and asked um, my publisher to rewrite my to have my book published again, but with the chapter of the Pride of Britain. So my book was then released out again. Really? Um, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, and that's really my life story. <laughs> Well, you're very humble about the donation, which is incredible. But I do you regret now or are you kind of pleased that you did get that publicity and that it has led to other people donating? Was it kind of yeah. a blessing? OK, because in a way, then my mom's helped more than just one person. Right. Yeah, she's helped sure. other people, too. Yeah. And when you Google her name now, her, her legacy's changed. And who can say they've changed the legacy? And that's what I like now that I can teach people. You can change a legacy at any point in life. Like me, at one point I was homeless. I was on drugs, but I'm not there now anymore. I've changed my legacy. I've changed it. When you Google my name, it's different now. It used to just say I had a book out and it was all about my dad killed my mom. Now it doesn't. It says I won an award for donating a kidney to a stranger. You can change a legacy at any point of your life. Yeah. But people don't think they can. They think once, once you've, your name is tarnished for something, it's always going to be tarnished for that. And actually I proved that it's not. Yeah. No, and that's amazing. So I get what is your your relationship with your siblings like now? Are you close? So to my them? Elder, well, my elder brother passed away in two thousand six. Oh, sorry. So um, two thousand sixteen. Sorry. So yeah. So um, he's not around. My elder sister, we're not close. We just live different lives. We just. I think for her, it's a lot harder because she was um, twenty nine, and then all of a sudden she was bringing up a nine year old boy, child. And her and her husband at the time, they're not together now, didn't want children. And then they were given two because she had to bring up both my brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, so for her, she's lived a different life to me. My younger brother we're very close. We've always been very close. Okay. Um, but he has a different relationship. Me and him are brother and sister. Him and my sister are like a mother and son relationship. Hmm. So things you wouldn't tell your mummy would tell me. Things you would only speak to your mum about, he would tell her. That he has a different relationship to us. But I mean, if my because my brother travels the world, so when he's home, I see him. 
I'll see my sister because he normally stays with her. But if he's not around, we don't normally spend a lot of time together. We're just very different, yeah. Yeah, and he was young enough, too, that he had a completely different experience, yeah. you know, than you did. Like, with her, with my sister, she doesn't like to talk about it. So when me and my brother, are, we like to talk about my mom. He says to me all the time, I, f- I forget in things. And because when I have no makeup on, I look exactly like my mommy's always saying, can you take your makeup up just so I can stare at you so I can remember what mom looks like. Um, so it's just cute. And he's, he forgets things. So he'll talk to me with, and we'll talk about my mom. We'll, while with my sister, you ask her a question. She'll answer it, but she stops the conversation. So she doesn't like talking about it, which is okay for her. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we have different different uh, relationships. So what does she think of the publicity that you've gotten and just like receiving the award and everything? Is she? She didn't understand. She for her, she was like, so you watched a movie and then you decided to donate a kidney, and I was like, <laughs> well, it didn't quite go like that. So she right. doesn't get it. Um, she did struggle with it when I was the night before the hospital because she was concerned that if anything happened to me, she would be responsible to me. So mm. like. I remember she she sent me a text message saying, what happens if you get brain damage? And I was like, well, that's not one of the symptoms. But she was concerned that if something bad happened, who's going to look after me? She would then now be stuck with having to look with somebody, look after somebody else. And I tried wow. to explain to her that you're my sister, you're not my mother. So I'd done a will and everything that if anything happened, you was never to be responsible for me because I'm not your responsibility. I'm your sister. I'm not your child. Right. So the government here would look after me or I would go wherever. You are the last person to put your life and hold and look after me because that's not your responsibility which yeah I think that's what she found the hardest but she's she was okay yeah but my sister's a very private person and I'm not and my brother's not we're very open if you say to us where's our parents we never lie I would say oh my dad killed my mom it's like I'm not she's well she wouldn't she would just say my parents are dead she's very private about her life so I think it must be hard for her that she has me that's not private and I tell everybody my life story but then she helped me with my book so the book before I was born is stories that she's she's told us so that we could um write it I didn't know any of that because obviously I wasn't alive so she did help out with the book so she has been quite a little bit supportive yeah yeah so what does I guess what does forgiveness mean to you so forgiveness to me is people think oh if I forgive if you forgive someone then it's like forgotten about and it's okay that they did what they did. And it's not. Forgiveness is a very personal thing. It's basically saying, for me, it's basically saying, my dad killed my mum. I can't do anything about that. I can't change it. I can't, I can't go back and stop the situation. So what can I do for it to help me? So for me, it's about saying, what you did is not okay, what you did. But if I keep hold of this anger, that's not good for me too. So I have to let it go. So I can forgive you for the act that you did, but I don't agree with the act that you did. Or I'm okay with what you did. But I have to get move on. I have to pass on. It's just like when before my dad killed my mom, I was a very angry person. I hated the world. I actually wanted to kill my dad. I wanted my dad dead. I hated the world. And I lived with all this anger that was inside me that was no good. But once I got into a relationship with my dad, I didn't have that anger. It was like I had peace. And it's the peace for yourself that forgiveness is. It's not about the other person's got away with something or they get to do do what it is. It's just the same as, um, I guess, in a way, forgiveness for yourself. If you do something bad. You have to forgive yourself that you did something wrong. We're all human. We make mistakes. Right. Obviously, if you kept doing the same mistake over and over again, then it's a bit different. Um, but we all make mistakes. Um, and I have that normally in my real life. Like I have three strikes and you're out. You make a mistake first time. Second time, you should have learned your lesson. Third time, you haven't learned your lesson. I can't have you in my ha- in my life. Right. Um, the same way as I, I believe you are the people that you surround yourself with. Mm-hmm. So choose wisely who you surround yourself with if you surround yourself around negative people you're going to be negative if you surround yourself against inspiring people you're going to be become inspiring if you surround yourself 
with positive people, you're going to become positive. So making so taking myself out of situations that were negative to me or were no good to me or cutting people out of out of my life that were no good for me was a good way of doing it. And sometimes it even has to be your family members. Right. right? If somebody makes you feel bad about yourself or sure. makes you feel you're not good, you have to you have to let it go. So forgiveness is is about yourself. It's not about it's not about the other person. But people think that you've let that person get away with it, right. and you haven't. It's about inner peace for you, and you have to move on. There's if you don't, what are you gonna do? You're yeah. gonna like I would have ended up in a mental hospital with my dad <laughs> if I didn't find a way of, of figuring it all out of saying how do I move past this. And for me, it was eventually I had to forgive him. And for me, it was a little bit easier because I knew he had a mental problem. It wasn't like if he was a serial killer, I think it might have been a little bit different. Right. And yeah, if that policeman hadn't have told me I couldn't see my dad, I might have never gone to see my dad because it was only because he was telling me, no, you can't do something. And I was like, you want to bet? My story could have been totally different. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Hmm. I believe everything happens for a reason. And you meet everybody in your life for a reason. Everybody teaches you a lesson. There's a poem that's out. It's called A Reason, A Season, and A Lifetime. You meet people for lessons, good, bad, different reasons. And everybody teaches you something in life. Um, and my dad had to teach me about unconditional love. Right. And that's why I named my book Unconditional Love. That's what I managed to learn from what happened. And that's also thanks to my mom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's really just... Beautiful. Because I mean, so many, I mean, everybody kind of has different levels of tragedy. You've had more than mm-hmm. your share. But I mean, you can go a million different directions, you know, from there. And the fact that you just put such a positive light on everything and have changed so many people's lives and saved lives, like that's just absolutely phenomenal. And I'm sure your mom. But don't is get me wrong. Like, I have, I have, I would have had down days where you sit there oh, and you cry. But sure. I always say, it's okay to have a down day. Just make sure tomorrow you get up and you don't have that day. If you want to stay in bed all day and curl in a ball and just cry and say the world is being bad to me and I hate it right now, it's okay. But tomorrow you best get your butt out of that bed <laughs> and you face the world because it's okay to to not be okay, but only be not okay for a little while. You can't keep it going. Um, right. So it's not all every day I wake up and I'm like, oh, I'm so positive today. Yeah, I have down days like everybody else. Oh, yeah, for sure. Just make sure you pick yourself up and dust yourself off and get on with it, yeah. Yeah. Because you only have one life. That's it. You only have one life. And before you know it, it's done. And they say they speak to people on their deathbed and the one thing they regret is never is always, I wish I hadn't have, I'd had more time to do the things that was enjoyable to me. So do the things that make you feel happy every day. Yeah. That's the best, especially right now. The world's just a crazy time. Yeah. So that's a great message for for any time, but especially right now, I think so. Yeah, because especially like now, like I came, I was working on cruise ships. I went not long ago and I came back just before the coronavirus. I had no job, nothing. I was like, oh, my God, how am I going to survive? I went to work in a little shop for a little while and I nearly had a meltdown because I was like, I haven't got a job. Where am I going in life? And then I just applied for every job. So now I'm doing a job that I would never thought I was doing because it's not in my job description. So I'm working with pilots. That's not their career choices because (laughs) you just do whatever you need to do right now to one, get yourself out of the house and two, to survive. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also make sure you pay it back. So like for me, I will find a way that to help the people that are struggling at the moment, because at the moment I'm lucky that I've just now got a good job. So I will go out there and I won't put it on the internet. I won't put what I've done, but I will go and find a way to help somebody that's now struggling because one day they will do that to someone else. This, that will be my next pay it forward because I still have two more to go. I will find somebody that needs some people that need help and say, you need to carry this on to somebody else when you've got 
your life's better carry on right just be kind to people yeah because everybody now is struggling from the rich to the poor absolutely <laughs> like i said you have pilots that have lost their jobs mm-hmm. um to people that have lost their jobs that are on lower income everybody's in the same situation and it just shows you at the end of the day as well that houses and money and cars mean nothing at the end of the day we're all, we all bleed the same right we're all the same people yeah and a, unfortunately a virus kind of puts things in perspective because it can get anyone you know we're all kind of susceptible yeah. to it so yeah okay well, I really appreciate it. It's just, it's just fascinating. So I appreciate you sharing it with no me. No problem. And, okay. Well, thank you so much. I You're appreciate welcome. it. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. All right. Bye. Natalie, I thank you so much for taking the time to share your story. It was such a pleasure to get to chat with you. Uh, you're incredibly humble about the organ donation that you made even though it was just such an incredible sacrifice and you chose to make it about honoring your mom's memory instead of seeking praise for what you did. But please know that what you did was absolutely amazing and is incredibly inspiring. You have saved multiple lives because of that and brought a lot of awareness to organ donation. So, so thank you. Also, check out Natalia's book. It's called Unconditional Love. And after you're done ordering that, if you could just pop on over and rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, that would be cool too. That's the best way to support the show if you like what we're doing, and it would be greatly appreciated. Also, check out the Facebook page if you haven't already liked it. Uh, It's Know What I Heard podcast. If you have any show ideas, questions, comments, you can put them on there, or you can also email me at knowwhatiheard at gmail.com. Again, thank you so much for listening. Your support is greatly, greatly appreciated. And until next time, hey, know what I heard?